0: It's like a worship for me to write. It's like I'm being used by melody. There's no strain, it just gushes out.
1: He was the pioneer of the glam rock movement. He deserved universal acclaim. He was the biggest selling poet in Britain, and he loved that.
0: There's been a change in England, and we are part of the change. He comes out wearing his glittery his jacket, his glitter on his cheeks, and we just got caught TV. Eyeliner, I think, is still a political act. It was playing with gender. It was playing with power. I'm not really bisexual, I've ever. David Byrne, I gonna get married at one time with I was like, oh, I do to know what that is. 175,000 people got up and booed. I mean, well, this is incredible.
1: I think his records were too out there for American audiences at that time. Yeah. Of course, Get It On, Bang, On, was a huge hit over there.
2: We were going to explore Mark Boland as a composer, where he's never gotten his due.
0: All right! I just had to work out words. Mark Boland seemed to invent a kind of language. You hear those sounds and they're coming out in the records today. He said, all the people that imitated me have taken over. He said, I have to change for myself. All of a sudden you hear, (laughs) wham!
1: You know, I spent a wonderful evening uh, last night exploring or re-exploring the music of Mm -hmm. uh, Mark Boland, its influence uh, on future generations, uh, his legacy. And I loved the opening to the movie with Billy Idol, who, by the way, still looks great today. Doesn't he look good? And how he he recounted uh, this infamous uh, wheelie, Festival, which I have to tell you, if you didn't know the background to this, it was initially supposed to be a charity no fundraising event organized <clears throat> by the Clacton Round Table, which is, and it was supposed to be for 5,000 people, right? And it was only when the Isle of Wight Festival didn't happen that everything transferred to this wheelie festival so he gives this great account doesn't he of of how Boland hits the stage and everybody boos and it gives you an indication of his character doesn't it Boland that he could actually stand up there and basically tell everybody to fuck off yeah
2: yeah and the reason why that was in my longer cut that that in that Billy Idol moment because it's so great and um, I showed the film to a really extraordinary with a rough cut the long cut to an extraordinary editor who I've known for a long time who is uh, Martin Scorsese's editor for his music docs David Tedeschi Yeah, yeah and I said David could you take a look at this and tell me what you think of I mean, of the whole rough cut. And he said, Ethan, what is it that you would want people to know about Mark Bolin the most? And what, what would you say as an introduction about him as a person, about his character? What do you want to convey? And I thought, I want to, and I said, I, I want to convey his courageousness. I want to convey... Mm-hmm. That he had balls, that he had a toughness to do what he did in the way he wanted to and the way he believed he could do it. And Mm. all of a sudden, and then I, you know, he gave me some other thoughts. And then I I had a discussion with my own editor who was in that meeting. This was all during the lockdown, so it was all on Zoom. My life is on Zoom. And, (laughs) uh, our lives are on Zoom. And he, and I said to the editor, I said, I know, I want, I'm going to do something bold. I know I want to open the film. I'm going to open it with that Billy Idol moment. And the editor said, okay, I know how to do this. I know how we can do this, Ethan. And that's how it happened. And it was the best decision at that moment that I made. And it, I mean, that story was way at the end of the film in another cut.
1: Well, it was it was perfectly positioned because what it does do is it hooks you in because I, I was growing up, you know, the back end of the, the 70s into the 80s. And obviously I knew Mark Boland. And I would never have thought that he had, as he said, the balls to get up on the stage in front of 150,000 people and say that because that wasn't who he was portrayed as, certainly to, to me as a as a kid growing up,
2: well, let me tell you something i th- many people that I talk to, you know, a lot of when you're making a film like this, you have a lot of discussions, some of which make the film, some of which don't, but they certainly inform the character you're portraying and the story you're telling. So I began to realize that it's not what we say that he was ahead of his time, et cetera, et cetera, but that he was very tough in the best kind of way. And he, Mm. and it was, and it was said by the people who knew him best, how tough he was, how strong he was. And I mean, he certainly was a kind person, but he also, he, he could take a lot. And I think a lot of it came from growing up on the streets of of the East End. And then you know, becoming a mod and just posing all the time and having this swag, this swagger as a young man. And it just carried on through his life. So I don't think he was afraid of record executives. I don't think he was afraid of fans. I don't think he was afraid of other musicians. I don't think he, he just, and I think that's envious in any kind of person, especially an artist. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to convey that. I thought that was really important because as you say, Tim, I don't think that's a characteristic that necessarily came across uh, when he was alive. Uh, But now when you know that and you look at the way he performed, uh, you go, Mm. oh yeah, he really had it. That really informed how he created his whole act in
1: a way. Bill Kerbishly uh, said that the that he deserves the acclaim that he didn't get, especially yeah. for being one of the great songwriters and composers of his time. Now, this would appear, again to me, to be because of the, the audience, um, whose numbers obviously exploded when he appeared on Top of the Pops with the glitter on his face for the first time and glam rock came into being. But his audience... Gigs, uh, as he alludes to, was literally between 9- to 15-year-old girls. Now, they aren't really those that are following him for the quality of his songwriting or his expressive poetry.
2: Right. And I think I know that that was annoying and hard for him, but he was incredibly grateful for those fans. He loved being a, t- a number one seller. He loved having 10 number one songs in the UK in a few years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but he, the people he admired most were people like Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton. They were really, he wanted that same recognition, which is why when he got the recognition as a poet, that was important to him. Because he did feel and take himself seriously as an artist. But he loved the attention. He loved the pop stardom, for sure. But with that comes, are you being taken seriously if you have all these 12-year-old girls running after you? Like David Cassidy did. Like Donny Osmond. And he was compared to those people at the height.
0: I think, is still a political act, you know, in some places... It was playing with gender. It was playing with power. Gender is power. Hey. To take something feminine and put it on a man or a musician and make it sexy, I think that's dangerous. I think people love that. Like Joan always says with her guitar, it's pussy to the wood. It's something that affects people emotionally and sexually. and It's just glitter. It's just paint and powder and pigment. But when people see it, it pushes.
1: Because I remember growing up, as you will do as well the 70s and the 80s crossover really didn't exist if you if you were a punk you were a punk there was no way you were going to sit there with your punk friends or your rock heavy rock friends and say hey i've heard this this great pop song <laughs> it just it didn't happen
2: <clears throat> no it not only did didn't happen music fans are really tough and i don't know if you remember but in the united states <clears throat> There was this big movement. Disco sucks. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, and records were burned <laughs> at a stadium in Cleveland, and it was a really, it was a big deal. And it was like the mods and the rockers, you know, it was, <laughs> it, but it was on a much larger scale. Um, and he didn't care about that, which is great. Which is that pop music and serious music and success and a guitar driven sound and a strange vocal and a certain kind of performing that it could all mix Hmm. and he was revolutionary in that way that he um that he was willing to go that far in so many genres all at the same time and mix it up and fans aren't always forgiving of that and you sure, know,
1: absolutely. It, well, you remember when Bob Dylan picked up an electric guitar for a start.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a, you know, there's a great book uh, by of British writer, Rob Hall. I think his name is called Electric Eden, which is the history of an ex wonderful book, the history of English folk music. Yeah. And he kind of compares Mark Boland going electric and glam with killing the electric folk, same thing with the the kind of Donovan-esque thing that was so big in the UK in the late 60s and early 70s. So it is very, very similar, except he didn't just go electric. He went psychedelically, (laughs) uh, gender bending, crazy. And it was so Fabulous. Yeah.
1: Uh, what I think will surprise people who watch this film as well is the cast list. I know we're looking at the the recording of the the album here, but it was the people who recorded the the tracks and who we see on film. Uh, because I was very surprised to see that Mark Boland had an influence on you too, for example, Billy Idol, Nick Cave, Beth Orton, yeah, um, Joe Elliott, an awful lot. Um, and of course, David Bowie. Uh, so there was a lot of people there who were influenced. That then again, you think, well, that was that was surprising.
2: Um, well, I was pleased because when I first started, when Bill Kirbishley said you should listen to more music and know more than Get It On, Bang a Gong, and I did my deep dive into his music. I heard his music and his influence. In everything that came since then, yeah. And so I thought, and when I began to talk to people and we reached out to people, I, wa- I wasn't surprised because it's there. You you can hear it in the music, but the depth and the effect that he had on people um, was 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 pretty deep, you know. And so it wasn't surprising to me. But it was surprising to me that so many people agreed to be in the film
1: <laughs> <laughs> now the interviews with uh, David Bowie uh, again some of these I'd never seen before uh, which were really quite revealing there were well, some very funny moments here yeah, and well- One was the impression that he did of Mark Bowden when they first met. And I'm trying to picture the scene here. There they are, two, you know, just signed artists in their manager's dressing room, thinking these, you know, that they're going to be the next big thing. And they're there painting his office walls.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, I... I that's actually archival footage. I mean, more recent archival Yeah, obviously. Footage I, because yeah. David had unfortunately passed away before we started the film. I, I had the pleasure of when I was a very young man working with David Bowie. Um, I was the assistant director on the Broadway version of The Elephant Man, which he appeared in a year and a half into the run. And the David Bowie that I met and interacted with was it was like that person. And so I wanted to find the interviews that showed that because I when I started doing my research on Mark, I could imagine what their friendship and rapport was like. I, I could imagine it in my head. And then sure enough, there were the interviews that backed that up. And also show David in a much more lighthearted, even loving manner than you know, Mr. Cool. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the Carnaby Street story. Fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Eight o'clock every night, David Bowie's down in Carnaby Street looking in the bins after Boland's told him that they throw everything out that's got a minor imperfection. Just a a, a fabulous tale.
2: Yeah, I think that Mark Boland probably affected everybody in that way and made them a bit of a better funnier, more easygoing person uh, because of his warmth and openness and certain (laughs) silly savoir-faire, but yet some gravitas as well about his work. And I I would imagine that that's something he brought out in people. You could see it in Ringo's face. You could see it in Elton John. The people who really knew him all had a very similar reaction. You can feel that he brought out People relaxed about around him, I, when, I think.
1: When you talk about uh, timing, Joe Elliott made a great point when he said that Bowman came at just about the time that colour television started to appear in homes for the first time. And so seeing him in all this garish glory, the makeup, the eyeliner and the glitter, it was like nothing that had ever gone before. And the colour suddenly in everybody's homes this was uh, this was a big moment
2: it certainly was and uh you know you talk to people who are around for that moment and they i mean i i think his impact in great britain and especially from those television appearances was immense i mean as big as the biggest star there is now and the fact that he is so forgotten around the world and really only remembered by his fans, many of whom are still living, thank God. And, um, you know, the music that lives on, I mean, I think it's kind of shocking how big he was and how little of that impact is, is really known today. I mean, there's a, there's a fan community that are like, you know, oh, of course, this film was made by an American. We all know that. But it's actually not true, Tim. You Mm -hmm. talk to a lot of younger people in Great Britain and some, oh, yeah, T-Rex, of course, and some, not completely sure. My parents might know. And it's a real shame that he is not remembered on the same level as David Bowie and other artists of that era. Yeah. especially since he was such a ground baker and especially because he influ- influenced so many of those people.
1: Nick Cave was making a contribution obviously in the, in the film. He made a, a big call and he said that Bolan was a better writer than David Bowie.
2: I think, well, that's his opinion. Yeah. yeah, And, and it's, it's kind of great to hear. I, I, I put it in because it's not a competition but it's important because David did get the recognition. David David really did get the recognition and has it now as well and still his the specter of David Bowie and his entire and I love David Bowie but the that his career has overshadowed Marx in so many ways, so to have an important and a recognized artist like Nick say that w- was very meaningful. Mm. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even bring up David Bowie. I don't think when we were speaking. So he, he, that's that's what he felt, and and for him, it impacted him that way. And people of that age who really got into that album. Um, especially, you know, cosmic dancer, that song was very, very impactful for a lot of young teenagers. And, um, if you think about it, you know, David's stuff, maybe doesn't get in your heart in the same way it gets, it, 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 uh, it ignites your senses for sure. David does, but. You know, Mark Bolin in that song, you know, burrowed itself into um, Nick Cave's heart, and you feel it in his performance. So I'm fortunate to have gotten that down. We are the children of Ron,
0: we've trodden the veils of the sun. A child will cry on swans, fly. We are the children of Ron. We are the seekers of space we've seen our master's face it's young and gold and silvery old we are the seekers of space there are people like eric clapton or Jimi hendrix or uh, jimmy page if you like whoever you relate to out of those sort of people that through the use of of a guitar which is like a piece of wood with, with string on it really when you relate to it like that made made by man that certain things can stir your emotions up out of a piece of carpentry or blowing a piece of steel pipe and, and making you cry. What happens, you know, within that pipe? You know, it's, it's the spirit coming through. It's when people deny sort of spiritual factors. It's very sad because it's everywhere around.
1: When you consider the conservative nature of the era, there were some surprising Interviews here when people did seem to be obsessed with his sexuality, and to to actually see on screen an interviewer say, uh, "So can you tell me, are you bisexual?" I mean, it, it, those sort of things simply weren't talked about back in the in the early seventies or the mid
2: seventies. No, it's and that also goes with his courageousness. Is I think. He was being courageous, but he was also having fun. I think he was, you know, the interview is hysterical because he's (laughs) obviously flirting with the woman who's asking him that. And he turns it into a completely flirtatious, funny, impish moment. So he's getting his cake and eating it too, which is, yeah, he's being courageous and open about people expressing themselves in every way, but he's also using it to get some, get attention.
1: Absolutely.
2: And and so it's, it's fun. It's, but it's, it's, it's brave, but it's fun. And I think he really didn't care what people thought. He just wanted people to like his music and, and enjoy that. Because he came out actually
1: and and said during the, I don't know whether it was in that interview or not. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, I had a, a very close bond and friendship with David Bowie, and then you you look at his face as he's saying it, and you imagine what the interview is saying. And he's got that look while he's saying. He said, "Yeah, we actually got married. And we were then not going to get married. we were going to get married." Was it? <laughs> it
2: you know, but, but you know, it's it's interesting. I will tell you that it was discussed with a lot of the people who knew him. Some people say he was definitely bisexual, and other people, you know. Elton John said he, he wasn't gay. And believe me, Elton John would want everybody to be gay and out (laughs) and so forth. He said, but he was, he was the, I, I don't know why I cut it out of the film. I didn't have the room, but he, but Elton says he was the campest person I've ever known. And, um, but he was, he wanted, he was, it was great. And he was, uh, people forget how, uh, you know, what the laws were like at that time yeah. and and what society was like at that time. So, Tim, I think you're correct in saying that really took guts and balls to just throw caution to the wind and say, and and then take it a step further and say he and David were going to get married.
1: Uh, Cameron Crowe.
2: Do I don't know that marriage would be the thing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, Cameron Crowe. Obviously, we know a lot about Cameron Crowe, but uh, again, great story here. He's he's 16 years of age, and obviously, Mark Boland, T. Rex, had had a big effect on him because he was obsessed with getting a uh, a big the big interview with him, Um, and he gets him as a 16 year old at the at the Beverly Wilshire. Uh, on the day of a uh, concert. And you've got some great footage in here with stills and photographs from the day with him just draped over this chaise long, you know, sipping champagne. Um, right. And he got a great interview.
2: Yeah, he did. that. That interview was really... There's a couple of interviews that were very long obviously edited down for the film but gave me a lot of information and Cameron Crowe because he was a journalist and he is a filmmaker came completely prepared he asked me beforehand for what i wanted to cover and you know what was going to be the nature of our discussion and i sent him a couple of pages of what my thoughts were what i wanted to talk to him about cuz i found the original interview And so he, I thought, oh God, this is a pain in the neck. And then he, no, it was a pain in the neck for Mm. me to (laughs) to have to prepare so heavily for the interview. But he showed up more prepared than anybody. He came in his, he found the original transcripts with coffee stains on them. And he brought it with him. He referred to it throughout the interview. He, he, had his, he had his own notes from the original interview and it w- was a font of information for, for me and for how I did it very early on in the process. And I got a lot of information and it was very thought provoking for many other things that come up in the film, not just in the section of that interview. And uh, so he was a he was an incredible resource for me, and unbelievable. He was nice, warm, but also incredibly professional. He very very helpful to this project.
1: Here's um, the the content that he bought and the observations that he makes during the interview, talking about this wounded bravado around this time. He's and seeing cool. David Bowie. Making it in the mom, one market that he can't, and there was a there was a chink in the friendship where it all went a bit cool with with Bowie for a while. Um, uh, it was a it was a difficult time because the time itself, in terms of the glam scene, was was changing. It was coming to its end in in England, but it hadn't really begun for him in the states. So he kept the makeup on in the states and stopped in the UK. Right.
2: Yeah, it's 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 a very very strange moment. I mean, I think in some ways, Elton got that uh, quite specifically because he's in, uh, which is that his sound was a little bit, and his whole affect at that moment was. Two out there for American radio. Yeah. And the everything about the music business at that time, Tim, as you know, was about radio, then record sales. Yes. Yeah. And everything came from the radio. And when you are an innovator and when you, um, are expected, in this case, as a Teeny Bopper fan, but you're doing something a little bit more outrageous and out there, even musically, um, people were not, it's all timing, people were not ready to embrace him in that way. And he, uh, you know, so its it's, you know, you never know, I mean, Tim, how many records have you heard that you think, oh, this is a hit? Oh, and it, and
1: yeah. it's a, hit. <laughs> yeah, a lot. And,
2: and people are not embracing it. And you you can't understand yeah, why. Yeah. And then you hear something else and you go and it's you know straight to number one. I don't even know what number one means anymore. It's more about <laughs> streaming. I don't even know if there's such a thing as the billboard. I mean, I know the billboard list exists, but it's it's not quantified in the same way. So... It's it's strange, you know, and and most people now are not most artists are not making their money off of record sales. They're making it off other things. It's
1: touring, and, isn't it? Touring of merchandise. Yeah.
2: Right. So it's, it's really hard to say. And, and also you have to remember that David cracked the moment at that moment. He cracked America, but in a cultish way he had not yet had a huge number one single the way market had had, even at that moment, but he was more known and he had an extremely avid cult following in America. Mm -hmm. And he did not hit the mainstream until much later as far as radio and as far as record sales. Um, but he was. It was obvious he was going to make his mark here in a much bigger way. You
1: can clearly see the turning point in the the film from all of the glory, the pain beginning to appear when he tries to evolve as an artist and move away from that um, teen idol thing. And it was it was quite emotional actually watching Gloria talking about his angst, certainly around the time of teenage dream and and you can just imagine this painful cry you know as he says, why why can't the fans just change with me why, why can't they come with me on the journey and you just think yeah because you can't take a 14 year old girl into that territory
2: but you know and the and the but the tragedy is in his death ultimately is that he went through this period, but by the way, when he went through that period, he never lost his enthusiasm. No, no. He thought, I'm going to experiment with black musicians. I'm going to experiment. And then when he, re- when the punk movement embraced him, because he embraced them and back and forth, he was way ahead. Of yeah. He
1: loved time. the Sex Pistols, didn't <laughs> he?
2: right nobody else none of the other people of his age which is late 20s now that seems old (laughs) but i mean then it seemed old now it seems so young but he was the only one of the top level of that age group that embraced the sex pistols and the damned and all of those people most of them saw them as a threat and did not accept them so that's interesting is bitter, maybe, and as upset and sad as he was, he still had his enthusiasm for new things and new music. And 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 he was ahead of his time with that. And he was really ahead of his time with, uh, that's why I included the Stan Lee radio yeah, yeah. piece, because he was ahead of his time in recognizing that Marvel Comics was going to be something way beyond the comic books nobody was
1: silver surfer he was in
2: yeah nobody was going to think of nobody was thinking that then and it's completely related to and and his obsession with the hobbit and tolkien even earlier that lord of the rings and he wanted to get into movies now the marvel books and lord of the rings are probably some of the biggest films of the last 10 15 years 20 years and that's heartbreaking that he had this vision of the world that was way beyond what a lot of other people were seeing, and that he knew it was going to be a multimedia business, that it was because of what Mm -hmm. he did, as um, Joe Elliott says, what he saw the what color television was going to do, he saw the future, he saw that it was going to be a multimedia business that it was going to be about film, that it was going to be about television, that it was going to be about animation, that it was going to be about all of these things. And, um, you know, that's heartbreaking. I mean, and if you think about it, since you're from classic rock, there was the metal, which, you know, the metal bands, and I don't cover this in the film really, except by Joe Elliott's presence. Mm -hmm. But the metal bands, which were humongous and sold more records and more concerts than anybody for a long period of time, um, I don't think that would have existed without Mark Bolin and T-Rex.